If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. From Galileo to Pasteur to Darwin, some of the most important discoveries in the history of humanity have started out as wild ideas disregarded as foolishness. This month, we want to pay tribute to some of the most cutting-edge ideas across science and philosophy, so you can lay down your bets now as to whether they are follies or discoveries of genius. In our first podcast of the month, we've brought together physicists Jim Al-Khalili and Raymond Tallis, and philosophers Angie Hobbs and Craig Bourne, to debate the most contemporary theories that we have on time. Quentin Cooper hosts. How should we make sense of time? Is it a dimension, a flow, a place, a process, a social construct, or something altogether more mysterious? That's a heck of a kickoff question. They could spend the whole hour on that one. Uh, we're going to hear first from Jim Al-Khalili, a professor of theoretical physics at the University of Surrey. The common sense view is that we don't know what time is. Um, and uh, the common sense view is, is, is actually what goes back to Isaac Newton. And, and for many people who haven't taken a course in relativity theory, we think we haven't progressed from there. So there's this cosmic clock that ticks by the seconds, the minutes, the hours at the same rate for everyone. And although we have our own, own subjective view of time, that if, if you're enjoying this hour, it'll go by very quickly. If you're bored, you know, the time will, will drag. But we know that's our own subjective view of time. Actually, in 1905, Einstein published his special theory of relativity, where he showed that that view of time is wrong. Time isn't an absolute. It's not something abstract, something that we have invented, or something that we have no control over. Time is more tangible than that. It's tangible in the, in the way that space is tangible. Now, in space, we know we, we have access to three dimensions of space, and we can move forwards and backwards, up and down, left and right. In time, we are constrained to moving in one direction. So we think, in, 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 certainly in physics, as time as having an arrow, a direction. I remember one of my finest moments was when I was doing my PhD and I was looking up some, some, some papers in the, in the university library and I came across one of Stephen Hawking's papers, so this is mid-80s, uh, and uh, where he talks about the arrows of time and the direction of time and how can you define the direction of time? Is past and future just something we've invented? And actually, in his paper, there are several definitions of time and, and he then goes on to point out that one way of defining time is in the direction in which the universe is expanding. So the past, Forget human memory. What if humans had never evolved? 
Why, what if there was no life in the universe? Would there still be time? Yes, of course, there would be time. It's part of the fabric of what the universe is, the, the, um, space-time, as, as Einstein calls it. Uh, and so Hawking said, well, if we define the direction of time as going from the Big Bang onwards, so the Big Bang, smaller universe, is in the past, the direction of time is the direction of the expansion of the universe. But if our psychological arrow of time, the way we think of part, remembering the past and looking to the future, is in the same direction as that, how would we know if the universe is actually contracting? Maybe the universe is getting smaller, but it's because our arrow of time is always pointing in the direction of expansion of time. And, and the first two or three pages of this paper I followed, and then he got into the maths. And Stephen Hawking's maths wasn't the same as my maths. It, it depends on what area of physics you're in. And I lost him there. But I was aware that he'd made a mistake about the arrow of time. And I remember making some notes. And then remember a few years later reading Brief History of Time where he conceded he'd made a mistake. And I remember reading this on the train and smiling, grinning to myself that I, I proved somehow that Stephen Hawking had made, made a mistake. But, but it points to the fact that even modern uh, physics doesn't really understand quite how time fits into to our theories of, of, of the universe. Relativity theory tells us that time can be squeezed and stretched. There's no absolute time. Time depends on the observer. If, if two people are traveling at, at high speed relative to each other, close to the speed of light, they will measure time at flowing at different rates. They will see each other's clocks running slower. There is no absolute present now. It depends on your frame of reference. And yet, the other great theory of modern physics, quantum mechanics, doesn't really describe time in, in this more complete way. In quantum mechanics, time is just what's called a parameter. It's just a way of ensuring how things change, cranking the handle from past to future. And, and one of the big questions in modern physics is how do we reconcile Einstein's theory of relativity with quantum mechanics? Because until then, we won't have a correct theory of time. But we do know a lot more about time than maybe some of the philosophers might argue we do. It, it is much more than psychological time. It's much more than just how we care to define it. There's an absoluteness to time, according to Einstein, that exists whether or not humans care to pontificate and philosophize about it. Jim, thank you very much for your brief history of Hawking's brief theory of time. <laughs> and, and that moment we all love when we find Hawking's wrong. I mean, oh, we've all, we've we've all enjoyed that, haven't we? I did say that was my, it was my finest moment. It was your <laughs> finest moment. Right, okay. Uh, next, we come to Ray Tallis, physician, philosopher, poet, novelist, bon viveur, fashion icon, Monke. Ray, Ray is author of Michelangelo's Finger and the Kingdom of Infinite Space, but for the next hour, he is bounded in this nut's hell. Oh, yes, lovely. <laughs> the truth is, I don't know what time is, but I know what it isn't, and I know what it doesn't. And I want to spend my four minutes focusing on the hapless metaphor of the arrow of time, and to argue that it's about time that time's arrow was put back into its quiver. <laughs> I think it's an unhelpful metaphor and it's based on a deep-rooted and revealing misunderstanding of the nature of time. The arrow of time metaphor, coined by Arthur Eddington, by the way, a very great uh, astronomist, astrophysicist, is a response to the notion that time has a direction. The idea that it flows or moves in a certain way, and particularly that it moves forwards rather than sideways or backwards. And this notion is reinforced, I think, by the way in science we represent moments as occupying locations in a dimension, a dimension usually marked T, 
so that time will seem when it's represented like a growing line. And this licenses a variety of daft questions, one of which that J Jim referred to and, and, and put it aside. For example, how fast is time moving? What is it growing into and how fast is it growing? And we both of us would agree that is, a, for all sorts of reasons, a non-question. Now, of course, representing time as a line that's growing is a very useful way of representing the unfolding of events in physics. But I think it's important not to muddle this way of representing time with time itself. For a start, it tempts us to think of time as analogous to space, hence all that stuff about time travel, all of which is uniform nonsense. Making time a dimension doesn't, of course, necessarily spatialize it, and many phys physicists would deny that we are spatializing time by making it a dimension on all, on all fours with the three dimensions of space. But it does render time vulnerable to be conceived spatially, vulnerable to space-like metaphors, such as the arrow of time. Because after all, poor old time is only one dimension, but there are three dimensions of space, so it's outnumbered. It arrives, if you like, like d'Artagnan, <laughs> adding, adding on to the three musketeers. So it's really got to, you know, follow the party line. Despite these problems, there have been efforts to give the notion of the arrow of time a scientific respectability. In other words, to, uh, to see what in physical terms would underpin the notion that time has a direction. And that's by trying to find irreversible processes in the universe. And this is a bit awkward because most of the basic laws of the universe are time reversible. There's no reason why things should go one way one than another. So we do have to look for irreversible processes. And um, Jim mentioned cosmic expansion as one, radiation of waves from a source, or the one that's most popular and has been most widely discussed is the second law of thermodynamics. This notion that overall in the universe there is an increase in disorder. Now you may say, how could you have that overall trend if all the laws, of the uh, mechanical laws anyway, are time reversible? Well, it's simply because there are more ways in which the universe can be disordered than it can be ordered. So there will be a probability that the universe becomes progressively more disordered, as a result of which uh, time will seem to have something underpinning its, uh, its, its unidirectional uh, motion. Well, unfortunately, uh, this, this doesn't work for the simple reason that you can have a thought experiment, which Henri Poincaré famously put forward. He said, you can still imagine giving enough time for the universe by chance actually to move from a state of high more disorder to <coughs> one of lesser disorder. What would you then say about time? Has time gone backwards or what? And this is a problem that applies to any endeavor, as it were, to deal with or to make respectable the notion of the direction of time by looking at the pattern of events in the universe as a whole. One final attempt by philosophers, apart from psychological directionality of time, is to say that the directionality of time comes from the relationship between cause and effect. Effects always follow causes. Well, that's actually not the case because there are many events that actually form a sequence in time that are, that are not causally related. So I would suggest that we abandon the notion of time's arrow. I'm not suggesting we now close the meeting, um, <laughs> uh, but we, we, we use it uh, perhaps to look at the kind of presuppositions that are built into the way we think about time so we can start again at actually wondering what this mysterious thing is and not, as it were, think that it's been solved by physics, physics, that that's the last word on time, that it's a kind of dimension, that it's a, a growing line or whatever, or that indeed that it flows. So goodbye to the arrow of time. 
back in its quiver and let's start thinking about time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Get, get rid of the quiver, come out with the sword of D'Artagnan, so we maybe have the D'Artagnan of time. That's you? brilliant. I wish I'd said that. I think you yeah. did. <laughs> I think you did. Our third speaker is Craig Bourne, who is a philosopher not only of logic and metaphysics, but he's a philosopher of time, and he's senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Hertfordshire. Okay, thanks. So I want to present you with three different models um, of time. The first one is presentism. And presentism says there's only one time which exists. So we assume that it's this one. Uh, so the future doesn't exist, the past doesn't exist. Uh, the future is that which will exist, the past is that which has existed. But there's only one time, the present. There's something special about this time. And that's quite an intuitive view. Uh, and so time's flow amounts to a change in existence. So things come into existence and drop out of existence. So that's what time's flow amounts to on the presentist model. The second model is the, the growing block model. So that says, again, there's, some, there's a present moment and events and times come into existence, but when they come into existence, they remain in existence. So there's this kind of accumulation, if you like, of facts and events. So the past remains in existence, and if you like, the, the present is at the cutting edge of reality. It's continually adding slices to reality. So the universe is growing in that sense. Now, the third model um, of time is the, what I'll call the tenseless model. Now, the tenseless model is one where uh, we, can, we should think of all times, past, present, and future, as laid out. Uh, they're all equally real, um, and there's no sense in which there's a, a moving present moment. Now, that sounds like it's denying that there's any kind of dynamic aspect to time, and it does do that. It, it denies that, but it says that uh, to account for our saying that time flows, we have to give some kind of account of our perception of time's flowing. So, in a sense, time's flow is an illusion. It's not an aspect of reality that time flows. It's just um, an aspect of our perception um, of time. So, they're the three models that I want to present you with. So, how do you choose between them? Now, I've formulated a little test, a very simple test for how you might go about choosing between these models. And the question is this, how do you know that this time is the present time? So. How do you know that this time is the present time? Now, you might think, well, of course it is. What a ridiculous kind of question. Clearly, this is the present time. So then, any model that can't guarantee what we all know, that this is the present time, must be a faulty model of time. So consider the second model that I talked about, the growing block view. Now, according to that view, um, what, we're to be, what we're to believe is that in the past, um, Aristotle, Plato, Descartes, Elizabeth I, all of these are real people like us, but are located in the past. Now, presumably, all of those people believe that their time is the present moment. Right? But we know that they're wrong, because they are past. So, what does that show? It shows that your believing that your time is present does not guarantee that it is the present moment. And it's not just... It's not just Elizabeth I who's in this. We, the, the argument applies to us as well. We believe that we're present, but it doesn't guarantee that we're present on this model. The present might be somewhere in the future, and we've been left behind, just as Plato and Aristotle have. Now, that's just a bizarre position to be in. I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting that's the position we're in. I'm saying something's gone wrong with this model of time. It can't be the right way of thinking about it. So how do the other models fare? Well, take presentism. Does that guarantee that this is the present moment? Well, clearly it does, because According to the presentist, there's only one time that exists. If we exist, then we're guaranteed to be at that time. There's no other time at which we could exist. So this model works on that little test. Consider the, the tenseless view, the third model, all times laid out. 
In what sense does that guarantee that we're present? Well, in a sense, there is no moving present in this model, so there's nothing to get wrong about, so to speak. But there's a sense in which they do want to say things are present, but that's just the time that's happening now is the present time. For us, the time that's happening for Plato is his present time, and so on. So there's nothing more to present the notion of present than it's just the time which is happening now. So in that sense, this model guarantees that we're present because it's just the time that's happening now. So those two models pass the test, and I think those are the two competing models that we should consider when we're thinking about theories of time. How do you choose between those two? Well, some people think that presentism is somehow incompatible with theories of relativity and so on. Um, I think that's wrong. What about the tenseless model? Well, uh, some people think that, well, surely time isn't all laid out and so on. Um, isn't that incompatible with our everyday ex experience? Well, I think that's wrong as well. So I think there are two models that we should choose between and there's nothing in physics and nothing in philosophy which, chooses which can choose between them. So we've, we're in a situation where we should be agnostic between two radically different views about um, time. So that's the position that I want to put forward. Mm -hmm. Craig, Thanks. thank you. We'll go on to our final panellist, uh, Angie Hobbs. She's <laughs> the very first chair for the public understanding of philosophy at Sheffield. I thought it would be quite interesting to add to this debate some past, um, in inverted commas, uh, conceptions and experiences of time. So I'm, I want to look at how some of the ancient Greeks and Romans conceptualized time, experienced time, and measured time. Um, I think it's worth doing, one, because I think the, the Greeks and Romans um, outline the, the real basic questions that we're still uh, debating over time, and two, because they are they do, as well as asking whether time is real, they focus on how humans experience time and whether that changes, um, and also the ethical dimensions of this experience. Because the world of time and space and motion and change is also the realm in which phenomenal, by which I mean sensible human beings, live and feel, uh, this realm is also the realm of sense experience. Now, that gives rise to two intricate questions. One, does it mean that time only exists as a sense experience? Because those are different questions. You can have, you can have a realm of change and becoming and motion uh, and time and space in which humans live and experience, but humans could be out of the frame and not, there could be no humans around and there would still be time. However, an another way of looking at that is that you need humans experiencing, being experiencers, in order for time to exist. Those are different positions. We get both of those positions uh, in ancient Greece. You've got Aristotle taking the first position. Uh, he writes, time is the number of change in respect of the before and after. There, do there doesn't need to be a human measuring this number or actually counting the number for time to exist for Aristotle. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got St. Augustine, who says that time, past, present, and future do exist, but only as states of mind, uh, of memory, of attention, and expectation. So that's one set of questions. There's also the question about, well, if time is in the realm of appearance, does that mean it is illusory? And of course, that will depend on what the particular philosopher, uh, what a status that particular philosopher gives to the realm of appearances. You can go with Parmenides and Zeno and say that the world of appearances is deceitful and illusory. Therefore, time is an illusion, space is an illusion, therefore, motion is an illusion. We all know Zeno's paradoxes about how Achilles can't overtake the tortoise and the 
the moving arrow is motionless and so on. You've got Plato taking a rather fudgy position in the middle saying that uh, the world of uh, sense experiences is semi-real, a rather dodgy philosophical notion. So those are some very basic uh, metaphysical questions, but they also raise ethical questions out of this um, in that most of them, but particularly Parmenides and Plato, see that the eternal realm of being uh, outside time as being superior, superior in value to the realm of becoming in which humans live and move and change and experience in which time exists. Zeno and Aristotle also fascinated with the notion that if the past has been, the future is yet to come, and the present is a dimensionless instant, that means the parts of time do not exist. So there is no time. So they, they both play around with that notion. Uh, if, if, if the present is this dividing line between past and future of no dimensions, when can anything ever happen? And then finally, they're very interested in the notion of whether time is linear or cyclical. Heraclitus starts a notion of cyclical time, Plato picks up on that, the Stoics take that on board, and that gives rise to the ethical question, does something have more or less meaning if it happens uniquely, just the once, or if it is endlessly repeated? An idea, of course, that feeds into Nietzsche and his doctrine of the eternal recurrence. Thank you. <laughs>
questions about, well, why is it that we only dread the future and not the past? Why is it that we re regret the past and not the future? So there are lots of emotional issues concerning time. But just to pick up on where you think physics can give answers in terms of change and so on, it seems to be the assumption that you're making about time is that you need a moving present in order to account for change. This is something that goes back before Einstein to Bertrand Russell and uh, John McTaggart. John McTaggart thought that, yes, you do need this moving present in order to accommodate the fact that things change. What Russell pointed out was, no, you can, you can have an account of change in the static view, in the tenseless view. All that change amounts to is different things happen at different times. Now, that's not quite good enough, because then what's the difference between, say, spatial variation? So clearly there's a difference between what happens at my cuff and what happens there. We wouldn't call that change, that's just difference. So the question is, what makes differences across time change in the way that differences across space are not changed? That's the deep philosophical question. And perhaps the answer is something like, there's something peculiar about time which distinguishes it from space. One thing might be causation, and that's the thing that brings about change. That can't be the whole answer, because obviously there are certain changes which take place which aren't causal. But nevertheless, there's time being a dimension in which things happen there that don't happen in space is the, the philosophical problem to, to address. And it's not something that physics alone will deal can with. Can I come in on that, do you think? Yes, yeah. although yes. I did have a question for you, but oh, come on, on your own response well, first. Well, I'd rather set my own exam paper. Yeah. But it seems, <laughs> uh, it seems to me, I mean, it, Jim's example of Zeno is exactly the case I would have invoked for saying that science cannot actually grapple with time. Zeno's paradox of motion arose from confusing the way we represent time objectively with time itself. So we wouldn't got into the Zeno pickle if we didn't take our methods of representing time literally, thinking they were actually constitutive of the universe. But I'm entirely with Craig. Physics does lose time. First of all, it loses tense, that difference between tomorrow's dental appointment and yesterday's dental appointment. If you offered me 100 quid that I wouldn't suffer pain from yesterday's dental appointment, you know, if, if I was said, you know, I, I could pay 100 quid to avoid pain from tomorrow's dental appointment, then seriously, I would accept it. So there is a fundamental asymmetry in our attitude towards what we call past, present, and future, and that is eluded by time, as in the famous letter that Einstein wrote to Michael Besser's widow. He yeah. said, you know, we believing physicists just think time is an illusion, but a stubborn one. But it's worse than that for physics. It not only loses tense time, it's some physics loses time altogether. There is, for example, the Wheeler-DeWitt equations which lead to a completely frozen universe. So I'm afraid physics lets time slip through its fingers, and the reason it does that is it identifies time with number, going right back to the Platonic and Aristotelian era. So I'm afraid we need to rescue time from the jaws of physics if we're going to see it aright. But is there a danger that in, in talking about it like this, all we do is we take something which actually, on a day-to-day -day basis, out to our minute-to-minute basis, most of us are quite comfortable with. It's, a, it's something that we're very <laughs> happy with, and then we make it something we're a bit confused about. Well, we, well, we lose more than we gain. I, I, I think the confusion is the existentially more authentic position. The great thing about... <laughs> no, no, point but to be fair, is ex ex existential authenticity our highest goal in life? I think it rather is. It seems to me that the whole point of philosophy is to untake the taken for granted, to see the, that the obvious isn't so obvious. And quite right, when uh, you know, Augustine said, you know, when I don't ask what time is, I have no problem with it. When I ask the question, what is time, then I'm stuffed. And I think that's actually... He's that's moved a direct forward. quote, yeah. Yes, a two-fair, I think, was a phrase. <laughs> so, yeah. 
so you think it is worth it and we should just accept that... It is the most thrilling potential intellectual adventure. And God, physics has got a fantastic amount to offer in our understanding of time, but it is by no means the whole story. And bringing together the human story and the physical story of time is one of the great cognitive challenges of the 21st century. Discuss. Can I, can I, can I, yeah. can I come in here? Because I've got two things to say and they're linked. And the first is to defend Zeno. Um, it may be that Zeno wasn't trying to get rid to say that time doesn't exist. After all, his paradoxes are only paradoxes on the assumption that we do believe in time. The moving arrow is motionless. It's not a paradox to say the motionless arrow is motionless. It could be that Zeno is trying to say it's not that time doesn't exist, but that humans haven't yet learned how to articulate it in a way that makes it possible. Because if motion is to exist, then time and space must exist, and they must be either infinitely or finitely divisible, and I'm going to show you there are problems with either infinite or finite divisibility. Now, that general problem about how you articulate time, I think, brings me to my main point, which is your question, can physics answer the question of time? What do you mean by physics here? Because if you mean physicists, human physicists, using language, writing down words and so on, thinking thoughts, those are all things that are happening in time by beings who exist in time, who are creatures of becoming, if you like, and so therefore can, can get things wrong and articulate things incorrectly. But as I understand it, that is the only option, isn't it? It, 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 may, be the, it may be the only option for us, but that it, it, I mean, there may be a realm of sort of physics, of laws of physics out there which humans can't get hold of, which might be different. So the, the, the question here is it really, really matters the distinction between what is time and how do humans articulate time, including physicist humans and how they articulate time, because that second question is one which cannot be answered solely by science, because it inevitably leads you into questions of how humans experience time, use time, function in time and articulate time, which are not solely questions of science. They can't be. So, so this, the question of time cannot be reduced solely to laws of physics because it is discussed by creatures who are living in time. Jim, what would happen if we... Is it conceivable to you that we might, there might be a day where we go, yeah, okay, that's it, we've got that one sorted. Time, we don't need to do any more work on this. We have, we've now understood the nature of time. Yeah, I think so. I don't think there's any reason why, just because we are embedded within time in the same way that we're embedded within space, that we can't reach some ultimate truth. Okay, it, it depends about whether science is telling us about the way the universe is or is just telling us how we perceive the universe. But we like to think we're getting ever closer to some, ab and that's my own personal view. I believe there is an absolute truth out there that science is striving to get closer and closer to. We still have, I agree, there's still lots of problems with time. And the, 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 the main issue for physicists is that Time is described as, uh, uh, as geometry, as part of space-time according to relativity, and, and quantum mechanics it's just another parameter in a uh, differential equation which, where things change within time. And when we think that if the universe is, is sensible, then our two best theories of the universe should somehow be, be unified. So there are issues to answer, but I, I, I'm an optimist in that I feel there's no reason why we can't as humans, despite being embedded within time, yeah, but if you take Augustine's view that past, present and future exist as states of mind for humans, but past, present and future exist altogether for God in an eternal present. Now, whether you're religious or not, that is not a question that a human being in time can know the answer to. 
So the, I think the very most that human science can do is say we can come up with the, the very best possible definition but we can of come time up with within this, human science from a human perspective. We can come up with this tenseless model of, of time, the block universe coexisting. We can never extract our, ourselves exactly. out of time, we can't. but we can still describe it mathematically we, and model we, we it. We can, but we, because we can't step outside time, we still can't know if that model is accurate or not from a different perspective. You underestimate the cleverness yes, of science. Yes, one oh. just has to, yes. <laughs> just before Ray comes in, can I just say that line from Jim was a Bond villain line. You underestimate <laughs> the cleverness of science. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I mean, first of all, I have to say, I take my hat off to physics. I'm awestruck by what physics achieves, and I'm awestruck what it has to say using by reducing time to a parameter or reducing time to part of the fabric of space-time. What is achieved is absolutely amazing. This place is warm, heated, and so on and so forth for all these reasons. And I'm very, very optimistic about the future of physics. But I'm not optimistic about the future of physics as a substitute for metaphysics. And this is the difference, really, is that there are aspects of time which cannot be captured by physics. And in fact, most of the impo humanly important aspects can't be captured by physics. Because ultimately, physics is either about static things like equations, matrices, arrays, spatial time continua, or whatever. Or it's about numbers, which are quite remote from change and our experience. So it just seems to me that there is always going to be the greater part of time which is untouched by physics, even though, of course, t is a very important parameter, or indeed, dimensional part of the fabric of space-time. Although I should just very quickly say, yeah. most of physics used to be metaphysics. Physics is, is, is encroaching on what was metaphysics and answering the questions that we didn't, we didn't think hundreds of years ago were part of the realm of science. And I think that's a pity because then we've been so appropriately dazzled by physics that we miss what is being missed in the darkness around physics. And I think we've got a great opportunity this century to start actually becoming metaphysicians again uh, and, and looking. And by the way, space is a great problem. Space is quite problematic. <laughs> don't bring space in. Part two. There's nothing easy about space. It just looks less mysterious than the time, but of course it isn't. That is it. Time, gentlemen, please. That hour went by, not being Greek or Roman, at almost exactly the speed a normal hour goes by, even if it seemed to go a bit faster. Can we please thank our extremely well-tempered temporal panel, Angela, Craig, Ray, Jim. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Which side of the debate did you fall on? Let us know by tweeting at iii underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our times.
One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.